Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast. And today I am so thrilled and honored to have Lisa Kemmer. Kemmer? Any way you want to say it. I just say Kemmer. Kemmer. Great. Thank you, Lisa, for being here. And I just have a little short bio, but it doesn't do any justice for Lisa. She's an incredible human being that's been working for this cause for a very long time. She's an internationally she's internationally known for her works focused on animals, the environment, and disempowered human beings. Professor Emerton Emer Emeritus. I always get a little tongue-tied on that word. Me too. Lisa Kemmer founded and directs the educational information sharing nonprofit Tapestry. She's going to share that with us today. Kemmer is the author of Vegan Ethics, Amore, Five Reasons to Choose Vegan, Animals and World Religions, Eating Earth, Environmental Ethics and Dietary Choice, and Sister Species. Women, Animals, and Social Justice. I'm super excited to hear about that also. So thank you, Lisa, for being here. Thank you I'm for so inviting grateful. me. Yes. I'm very happy to be here. Yes. Well, I hope that you're going to join the Million Vegan Grandmothers. We don't have to be grandmothers biologically, just us women getting together, us vegan women that maybe have a little bit of wisdom under our belt without sounding too arrogant, but maybe a few years that help us understand things a little bit different as we release some of the old ways of thinking. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And can I just start right there with not being too arrogant? I just want to say that we women are too humble. We just are Mm -hmm. too cautious about saying we learn with age. We do get so we know some really important things and we have them to share. And that's important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Because in so many traditions, The grandmothers were held in such high esteem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've asked people why things have changed. And I I had some very white centric replies, which, you know, were well intended that a lot of the elders have no longer earned our respect. They're living in ways that don't support the earth or any type of liberation. But I had a Hispanic a woman tell me that's a white centric view that no matter how the grandparents are in their culture, they're still held in high regard because whether they're teaching us how to live or how not to live, they're still respected for the wisdom and the ages of time and what they've brought to their generation. So thank you. That is brilliant. I had not heard that about them teaching us how not to live. I think that's really important that it's true that you you still have a trajectory to follow, to see, to learn from when a person is older, even if it's one you say to yourself, that may not be a path I want to take. Yes, I mean, I'm really excited to start here because I haven't really been able to have this conversation with too many people. And I watched my mother seem like a superhero to me go turn into somebody that I was asked once by a spiritual teacher when I was feeling quite wounded by my mother's reactions. And she said, is your mother the example of how you're going to grow older? And I said, oh, gosh, no. And she said that she's just a person that's done her best. And she's teaching you the other side of it, Hmm. what it looks like if you hold on to things and you live in your past and you grow old, a little frustrated and a little displaced. And then, then it was a really easy journey for me. And 
it was like whoever's the most conscious in that movement is the one that's most responsible. So if it's us leading the way, which I believe a lot of the children are leading the way for us. And as Judy Carmen says, who wrote Homo Ahimsa, one of our grandmothers said, we want, we also want the young people who are here to really raise the issue of veganism to know that there were a lot of older people that were doing it before them and that we're here to support them also. So the grandmothers have come together to let the young people know they're not alone in this journey, mm -hmm. you know? That's nice. You know, there's a wonderful bit of wisdom that I learned about from Africa, but I'd be willing to bet that most indigenous cultures look at the world in this way. And that's as time moving backwards. Mm -hmm. And in our Greco, Euro Greco kind of coming out of Greece and Europe vision, um, time moves forward. Everything's ahead. It's all about young people in the future and what's going to happen. But in, the, in those older cultures, it's all about what you remember and what you have and what you know has happened. And in Buddhism, you have this moment where you stand and you can see forward and backward. And what's interesting about kind of combining that Buddhism with the indigenous tendency to look backward is that when you stand in this moment, there is nothing ahead. We have nothing, expectations, hopes, maybes. But you know, you know history, you know what's behind you, you know the people, you know what they've done, you know what's unfolded. You have something there that is unchangeable, that is permanent, that ties you back and back and back and back and back. And what's really wonderful about this is that when people from the Greco culture headed over to these indigenous places and tried to change them with things like insurance and capitalism, they just weren't interested because they weren't looking to where those things lead. And it protected them from some of the worst aspects, at least for a while, of that newer overlay of culture. So anyway, with regard to time and history and aging, I like to try to remember to be backward looking. And for me, I just lost my mom in December. She was 92. And from my view, there's life before you lose your mom and there's life after. And there's kind of a gestalt shift in an understanding that I can't explain, but I can say this, that only when my mother died did I come to see that really she'd been a support network for me since the day I was born. And because she was there since before I was born, I wasn't aware of it. And so whether, and you know, referring back to what you said, whether or not she and I agreed, especially with my vegan world or my, whatever it was I was doing, and I, and I wouldn't say she disagreed, but, my point being, whatever view she held in relation to mine, she was a support for me from before I was born, and I was unaware of that until I lost her. So, again, that the beauty of those elders and the importance of the grandmothers. Yes, yes. And a friend of mine recently said, you know, when we're blaming our past or our our um, our past trauma from, you know, maybe ancestral um, stuff. Don't forget to thank also our ancestors, yeah. you know, just you please keep that balanced. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well said. So thank you for being here as a leader, as a wise woman, and maybe you can give us a little bit of, a little bit of insight in all of the work that you've done, all of the literature you've written, 
all of the amazing documentation that you've that you've done through your witnessing, through your education on how the grandmothers can support being in this middle place. This middle place that we don't we can use our history to collect information, but we can also stay very present while we imagine something better for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I, my first response to that is that it, when looking to that wisdom, it's really important to look cross-culturally. And mm -hmm. I want to be very clear, as I tend to look to, especially, I tend to look, well, I'm born in that Greco diaspora culture. So it's dominant in my life. So it's natural that for me, when I look outside that, I'm going to look at everything but that. But I think all of the cultures have something important to offer. So I guess my first thought would be that to be in the example would be that view of African time, that there are things in every culture and much of the wisdom is held by the women, especially at least especially information that matters to me. So, for example, we might talk about the problem of some cultures that focus on hunting and not wanting to let that go. But that focus has to do with male power. The women tended to not be the hunters. I mean, you can look at any one of these cultures and see an equally important tradition that is feminine, that women held, that no one holds up as essential to the culture. But why not, right? So what is the clinging to hunting except an expression of male dominance and power? So that's an example of where we can look to the past and we can look to grandmothers and we can see something that is worth holding on to and that doesn't conflict with our contemporary views as vegans of what is important in a culture. Say more. Well, you've got to point me. I always look to pointers. Where do you want me to turn? Well, I really appreciate seeing that you know, when people talk about hunting and gathering and they talk, they talk about hunting as the main part of hunting and gathering, why weren't we live, just living off a of gathering and what happened there? And, and when was that shift? Because the one thing that we don't see a lot, we have to kind of dig for it in many, many traditions, like the Essene ministry that I studied in plant-based nutrition, they were vegan. There were many, many cultures that were vegan Mm -hmm. And why do we not hear that a lot? And the mm -hmm. answer is because of that male power and dominance and wanting to hang on to the things that give men prestige. And I would say two things. First, I think that we have been largely gatherers in most cultures down through time. Hunting was something that wasn't, it often was not the core and in, in talking to some indigenous peoples and who have looked back at their history, even if you just look at the Thanksgiving feast and what was actually what was actually consumed in our own early traditions in the Americas, you can have a sense that it's been blown out of proportion where the meat falls into the spectrum of what was actually eaten. So mm. it, we know that meat is associated with maleness and with virility and manliness and masculinity and so of course it's been bent out of proportion its importance and its essentialness to our survival on behalf of 
on behalf of kind of just looking more closely at this situation where I don't ever want to seem to be blaming men. I think one of the biological realities of women is that they become mature when they menstruate. They can have babies, which gives them a place in the world that there's nothing in a man's world that compares. They never really, you know, this day and age, we can know, they can know who their kids are, but down through time, they didn't. And they were never as essential to that next generation as the mothers. So they found their meaning in other ways. And beautifully, one of their tendencies has been to support the people that like a nursing mother. So the supporting of, uh, of a family system, that's a beautiful thing. But, but what went awry with it was the tendency that an insecurity that may have come with that, that, they, that people might have tried to make themselves feel more important or think they took a greater place than they actually did in the community or a family. And again, that's where you see the importance of hunting that is blown out of proportion to what hunting generally is in any one culture and people talking about hunting as essential to the culture. Well, why is that any more essential than anything else the men or the women were doing? There's really no reason for that, except again, that overlay of the Greco culture where where meat and manliness and hunting have become, I mean, especially in the United States, that sense of manliness and hunting and go forth and kill. Although every time I bring it up to when I meet a hunter, really within a week I have and talk to them and they always try to pretend like, no, I'm just going into the woods. And I say, well, then leave your gun at home. And they lose interest in hunting when they don't have a gun. There's something about that kill, about that power, about that power over that is very much a part of that whole picture of what hunting is. So I think that the grandmothers and what they were doing in their cultures can help us to put hunting in its place and to recognize that hunting in most cultures was certainly not central uh, to feeding to feeding communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit about your books, Amore and Eating Earth, and then okay. you get into a little bit of tapestry. I'd love we'd love to. I'd love to our listeners to understand what tapestry is and how they can really uh, enjoy that tapestry of diversity that you're providing. All right, I'll start with tapestry and then if I forget, feed me into Amore because tapestry is the starting of the weaving that has led to the book Amore. And I think Amore is kind of right now a central book for tapestry. So I wanted to retire early and focus exclusively on activism. And as, a, as, an, as you say, as an elder, I say as an aging person, somebody who's been in this movement forever and is one of the oldest members of this movement. My goal is to give the knowledge that I've accumulated over the years. I was privileged to get an education and be an academic and teach in the field. So literally, I have focused on knowing, learning, knowing, and teaching this information for years about vegan ethics. It's been a large part of what I've done, including religion and feminism and environment. And that's another thing that's been important to my work is that I, I never was just, well, I was early on, but my first book was Sister Species in which I looked at women in the movement. And after that, well, actually it was my second book. My first one was my dissertation, but it was the first one outside of my dissertation that I published. And it put me on a track where I didn't look straight at animal activism. I looked at 
animal activism in relation with other issues, concerns, causes. So after that, I then wrote books on religion and, and my import, the importance to me of the, that book is that religion is probably one of the most fertile grounds for bringing change. And because the movement has rejected religion because religion has is not clearly strongly traditionally vegan or animal friendly, I use animal to mean every species other than my own rather than the non and other alternatives, which, which don't work for me. Anyway, I explained that in my writing, but anyway, um, so religion is extremely important to bringing change because, and I have found this as a teacher, when I'm talking to someone who's strong of faith and I know what their faith teaches and I bring that to the table, they will not say I don't care. They can't say I don't care. That, that lacks integrity as a person of religion, a person of faith. So I found religion extremely important for bringing change. So I wrote really, the only, um, it is the only book that's out there that systematically covers religions with regard to animals. And then I got into environment because um, because I could see that was extremely important. And, and my book on that, Eating Earth, which is cheap and simple and covers environment, it, um, atmosphere, water and fishing and hunting. And it's the only book out there that covers that. And it came out before pretty much any other book came out on that subject. Because I'm a woman, my, my books don't hit the mainstream and they're largely ignored. But if you if you kind of follow the pattern, they've been some of the, except for the uh, feminist side of act, animal activism, they're some of the first books that came out in these subjects and they're very comprehensive in what they cover. So I've kind of worked with animal activism in relation to these other issues. So tapestry, when I retired, was to be that tapestry of concerns that run together, all of which we have to heal. So if we care about animals, we have to be feminist. We have to pay attention to religion so that we can talk to people of faith. We have to know about the environment. So we have to have these other elements that come together. And the last one I'll bring is you have to actually care. I think you do. You have to care about human beings. You have to understand the relationship between diet what we're eating and how we treat animals and poverty, for example, and oppression of women and uh, trans aggression and um, homophobia. So once you start to understand those links, you have a huge platform to talk with people about animals and the initial concern that most of us move from. So Amore is a book. It's the first book out there that covers all of those in one book. And it's very concise and a very cheap book. So a stands for the animal suffering. M stands for the medical aspects of it. O stands for the various uh, forms of oppression. R stands for religion. And E stands for uh, environment. And by the way, the O is the human oppression as opposed to the animal oppression, which is the first one. So that's what Amore is. And I'm super excited to have finally put down in writing those thoughts on those interconnected areas in moral philosophy and of ethics of, and of animal activism. And honestly, if we want to bring change, we need to be informed on the larger picture. This movement has a terrible tendency of being much affected by the worst side of our culture. And in writing the book, Oppressive Liberation, which I, I think came out last year, but anyway, it, it's, it's a recent book. Oppressive Liberation actually looks at the movement and sexism in the movement. And one of the problems of any social justice movement is that it has a tendency 
to take on certain aspects of the larger culture. So if you're going to ask someone to become a vegan, you don't want to ask them to also, you know, become a feminist and I want you to take on socialism and I'd like you to start dressing like a a Buddhist monk. I mean, you're not going to get anyone if you do that. You want to say, we want you to go vegan, but everything else is the same. So that's what most social justice causes do. And in doing so, they adopt the horrible aspects of the mainstream culture. Animal activism has done that. It is as sexist and as much of a rape culture as anything else in our society. And one thing they do is they tend to be worse because they don't want they don't want to drive people away by seeming to offer, especially in animal activism, we don't want to put men, empowered men away because they often have money. And in our culture, they have they are viewed as having the best chance of bringing change. They are the voices that are heard. You can see how complicated all this inter interconnected mess is. So the movement takes on uh, th these empowered men, but in so doing must cater to them. And so it accepts, accepts the sexism, but the movement is 80% female. So what have you got? You've got a nightmare where empowered males are running movements and having control over a bunch of generally younger women. And it has proven to be just as much of a problem as it sounds. So that's some of the work that that book um, has unearthed. So Tapestry is an organization that for me allows me to retire from academics so that I'm focusing exclusively on the work that I wanna do. And it has three branches. How to put them? One of them is mentoring. I try to connect with anyone who wants to connect and just talk with them. Anything they want to talk about, about you know their own activism, about their understanding of the interconnected nature of activism, whatever they want to bring to the table, sexism they've found in the movement, anything they want to process with me. So the mentoring's really important um, part of it. Scholarship is another, and that's where I spend my time writing and creating and giving presentations, going to conferences. Uh, so. That's the research side of it. And those are the two main um, branches of tapestry. Uh, and I will leave it at those for now, but you can look up tapestry, tapestry of peace on, on the web, and it will, it will tell you about the organization. Thank you for asking. Mm, sounds like you have never retired. You just left the university to focus full time. I sometimes think of that when I see my friends just, you know, they get up in the morning and kind of do what they want. And I get up in the morning and I sit at this computer and that's where I stay. Usually I go from like seven to three, seven, sometimes seven to noon or one, two, three, anywhere in there. But it, it, there's no other way to get the work done. You gotta, you gotta be disciplined. And I, sometimes when I'm mentoring younger people, they say, how do I write? And I say, you've got to get up and get your butt in that chair and stay there. And you know, and it sometimes it's very hard. Right now I'm trying to write an article for Stanford Encyclopedia. And I feel all the things that normally others tell me they're feeling. Normally I'm up and in the chair and I'm in the middle of something and it's no trouble to keep going. But oftentimes between and when I'm starting something new that's a big project that I know I'm not going to get a break from. Once I'm in it, I'm in it and I'll stay in it till it's written. So I kind of resist getting into it. So I know how they feel and I know what they're saying. But get your butt in the chair. Keep, keep at it. Make yourself start it. Once you're started, hopefully you'll, you won't be able to get away so easily. <laughs> and as a, as a longtime body worker, um, somatic therapist, I um, get in many different chairs, get a ball, 
and get your core working, get a stand up for a little while, computer, and then maybe have your chair, but allow yourself to feel the many ways to, uh, to continue our. That is so important. So important. And, and, you know, take that, I say to people, take that every hour, got to have a big drink of water because our brain only has to be, you know, 2% dehydrated before we start to get a little fluffy Mm. and take three to five nice deep diaphragmatic breaths and then come back to ourselves because self-care is so important. So speaking of that, let's just slip into that piece. I'm writing a book right now with my partner called grief mapping, you know, talk about when, how things changed for you, you know, around your mother's death and things kind of changed for me around that time also, but I was on a pretty big trajectory of, of, uh, my son passed and both my parents two uh, four-legged companions and a couple of friends all within a very short time, three years. And, um, you know, I had to map out how to go and take this piece and turn it into something that was going to allow me to do good with it, do good with the pieces that were there. And as a long time, how long have you been vegan, Lisa? 45 years. Wow. Very long time. I don't, I don't even know. It's a long time ago. And I think when those of us who went vegan that long ago, it was more of a sliding process because it wasn't like you could just go out and replace your milks and your cheeses. They weren't there. (laughs) You just had to give them up. So, you know, sometimes you get a little milk or, you know, egg in something you ate. So that was just, you couldn't, it was very hard to do that break when you first started. Anyway, go ahead. Well, tell me how you've mapped your grief and turned it into creative action over time. That's our third step of our book. You know, it goes from instead of the denial, Kubler-Ross, as we kind of have the hypothesis that Kubler-Ross's five stages are the beginning. You know, we're going to deny it a little bit. We're going to maybe feel depressed and go into those stages and then finally accept. But after acceptance, after you accept this is the this is the state that we're in planetarily as as humans the oppression the whole amore peace once we accept that then you know we need to feel at least on some level the felt sense shock you know so we don't go back into denial we don't numb out with substances and then we go into empathy for ourselves and others or zach bush said compassion he thinks that's a little bit of a higher energy than sometimes empathy I'll explain that later. And then we go into creative action. If we're going to actually move that grief into something, something more powerful, and then we join together into different ways, uh, different pathways. But it seems like you've used a lot of the, the grief that you felt for the world and you've turned it into creative action and movement. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about that. I would say that's true, that I stay the meaning, the meaning for me is in trying to bring change for the future. And so whatever else is happening in my personal life is more manageable because it, I fade into the background in comparison with the work I'm trying to do in my world. And I think, you know, talking about the, the elders and women, I think that, I, I think that as we age, I know, as we age, we see more and more death. We just do you start to lose really people who are really close to you. 
And if you love animals from your earliest days, you start to see those deaths very early as well. And not just with the, the four le leggeds and the feathers and you know whoever else you love and are connected with, but you see it in the world. You see it in the world because you're aware of the cow next door that was shot or the snake that got hit on the road or the stray that you couldn't catch. And so very young, you start to store that kind of pain. And I think that so as, as women in this movement, I think we carry tremendous pain. And I think it accumulates over time. And so as aging, as someone who has been in this movement a very long time, I can tell you I have accumulated way too much pain. And so one of the things that we have to try to negotiate is a way is a way to manage that. And like you, I didn't just lose my mother. I lost a dog very similar to that time. And I now have a dog who's terminal. So it's endless. It's like, when do I get a break from the grieving and the, and the watching, the tending, the tending of the dying? Well, you don't. And as you age, there's more and more of it, you know, you, and I felt in my mother, I, and I know in my father, he said, I can't relate to anyone anymore about the time that he was getting ready to die. He just felt like the world moved so quickly and was so alien from the tiny little community, the little rural world he grew up in where you could trust everyone. Mm. No cars, no computers, no, you know, just a quiet little world. And, and I saw in my mother that she was watching all of her friends die and she was like the last one left standing. And I think what that's like, and I know that that's the world we head into. That is how it is. The longer you live, the more you watch others die. And so you are right. This is something we need to look at. And it's, and it's something that I think women have a special, special connection with, a special window on. And I think part of that, again, relates to our closeness whether or not we bear children, the closeness. My father worked outside the home. My mother was with us. And any way you look at it, in that sense, she knew us best. Mm -hmm. And so for parents who lose a child um, or for a, and also I was the one who came home to look after my mother. And that is often a role of a, of a female in the family so i i was there when mom died i was right with her i wasn't going to leave once i saw it was close i for three or four days i simply you know other than to run to the bathroom and back i was there i slept kind of in a chair and on the bed with my face next to her so she'd know i was there so there's a closeness i think often that females have and I'm not saying it has to be that way, and I'm not saying it's biological, but because of the duties our culture gives us and the roles we take on through our culture, that is the reality in the culture that I'm familiar with and in most others that I've looked at, is that the, is that the one who stays home is the closest to the coming generation, and it is the females who tend, who do that caretaking for the aging generation so that we are the closest to life and to death. And so in, if you want to look for wisdom and understanding on those topics, that's where you're going to look. Yeah, and a certain level of resiliency, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to. You have to have. And you have to talk with yourself about that. And one of the conversations I had was, you know, your mom didn't bring you into this world so you could shrivel up and die after she did. Get up and go. You got work to do. You know, and just talking to myself in a sensible way about the realities of life and death. And I'd also say, for heaven's sakes, you, you had your mother till she was 92. What are you whining about? You knew she couldn't live forever. You were very fortunate. So again, you know, pick up and go on. You know, you, you, were, you were fortunate. See that side of it. Don't, don't feel the loss, but don't get caught in it. Don't get hung up in it and don't get strangled by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other, you know, the grandmother's declaration is about love, the love for all of our grandbabies, all of the grandbabies of all species, you know, and that love based. I was reading a really interesting article by, I think it was Bobby Sud, and he said that his, his brother taught him that we can only stay in this cause well if we come at it with love, if we, if we come forth with love instead of hate, I, I hate people that don't, you know, do that treat animals poor. I hate hunters. I, instead of like, I love animals and I'm going to do my best. I love people and I really want to see them healthy, you know, that sort of thing. So do you think that love and faith are interconnected a certain type of faith, maybe as, as a theologian? Absolutely, they are. It is a core teaching of every religion that's out there. Love isn't always the word. It might be ahimsa or karuna or metta, but it's, it is always the core, that compassion. I think compassion is probably the closest or loving kindness, which is a more of a, a Buddhist term, but it's central to every religious tradition and it lies right at the core of ethics. And it's why we, those of us who would hope to bring change need to be versed in and understand that so that we can talk to people. If you, if you really want to bring change and, and bring people to the vegan way of, of living, well, why wouldn't you use the strongest tool that is out there? And I would say religions are the strongest tool. And so that's the branch I really, I really didn't focus on. As part of tapestry, because religions are neglected in our movement, one of its core mentoring and research interests is religion. And I'm working on a website that's gonna take me the rest of my life probably to finish. And that is to put up online, basically the content of animals and world religions, the book that I wrote on the subject. So I have Judaism up and online. It's on animalsandreligion.org. So it can easily be accessed um, and so I have Christianity ready to go as well, but I don't have it up yet. So I'm trying to get funding to get that up and running. But next comes Islam and then there's Hinduism and Buddhism and each one will take about a year. And I figure that I have enough stamina, hope if all goes well, I'll see it to, to its end and get all the religions up. But it's a long-term project. But yes, I think religions are absolutely essential. And one of the reasons is because love lies at the core. And I will add to that, that most religions, let me think. Yes. Yes. The major religions of the world have the, a vegan ideal. They say that that is the ideal diet. So not only do they teach love, but they actually then manage to show how you should practice that. And the primary way is through diet. 
Right. Well, I studied with Rabbi uh, Gabriel Cousins, Dr. Cousins, and and it was a scene in a scene ministry, and and it was really very much focused on Genesis one twenty nine. And if and if you had to, you know, the the animal flesh is if you have to, but a lot of people have not been taught that it it just got lost somewhere along the way, and uh, we need to revive that. Right. When I was teaching, when I was a teacher, I would bring this up in the classroom, and I'd say, "So let's read the a bit of the Bible here," and I'd, I'd have them read that portion, and I'd say, "So what are we given to eat?" And they'd say, and they'd usually say at first, "Animals." Um, then they just go on bread, fruit. Then I'll say, can you read it again, please? I had to do it five or six times before they would look, really look and see what it said and get it right. And that's just an overlay of tradition of what they've been taught and told, blocking their ability to see what's really written there. Isn't that something, you know, that's very, very interesting how we have this ability to overlook what's actually right in front of us based on how we've been brainwashed. I mean, at very early on, I have the, this is the hottest conversation on the table. And my grandchildren are living with me right now as my daughter changes houses and they're not vegan, but they only get fed vegan uh, in my presence. So it was even our nighttime story last night. And so they said, could you tell me a really creepy story? That's what their dad tells them, creepy stories. And then they said, well, maybe not a creepy story because we are having a hard time sleeping. And they said, well, maybe just a little bit of a creepy story. And I said, okay, well, once upon a time, there was this big, beautiful forest, this really beautiful, ancient forest. And all of a sudden, these big machines started cutting down all these trees so we could raise animals for people to eat and all the animals that lived in that forest had to run and a lot of them died and they're like is that why you're vegan my four-year-old granddaughter is that why you're vegan oma so all those trees don't cut get cut down and all the animals in the forest so to me that's the creepy story you know it's not some supernatural thing coming to grab us it's what humans are doing to each other and all living beings that we sometimes don't think we're able to tell. It's a story that we don't think we're able to tell. Will you please, tonight with your kids or when you get a chance, will you please talk to them about the word animal? Try using it and see what they think when you explain that they are animals. They are animals and so animal, you know, that's why I use it, to be honest. And I wonder what little kids would think. I've used it a lot with, you know, young adults, but I'm interested what little kids, will you send me an email? Let me know what the little kids do when you explain that they're animals and that the word, when you use the word animal, you talk about the animals of the forest. They are an animal of the forest. And in the Bible, they are created right alongside the land animals because that's what we are. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if Susan Hargraves says that to her children, you know, all the children that she mentors and, animal hero kids it would be lovely to have a kid's book on we are the animals for sure we are the animals sure would yeah we are the ones that we've been we've been waiting for so final words lisa and thank you very much for your work it's 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 like i can always feel the vibration the energy of someone that's just so empowered even even looking at your photos when i was about to interview you it's like 
Yeah, you're hunked into the earth. You know what you're here for. So, and it's very clear you're you're incredibly embodied in your truth. It all even speaking, it makes me feel a little a little weepy to meet somebody with your stature of of connection to your purpose. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for that. That's very kind of you. And I am so grateful for what you're doing. I I just women in this movement. Women in the cultures in generally, our knowledge and our wisdom gets overlooked. And there is so much there to look at. And I guess that my last thought will be to be sure we encourage young people and we ourselves make sure that we have at least one really good, really strong female friend that we nurture one another. And I have a fabulous female friend here and that connection, just nothing else like it. There's just nothing else like it. And so encouraging, and I think it protects women and it protects girls and it protects teenagers. If they have a peer who is a female that can help them, especially at times when they may not go to their parent, uh, mm. they can talk amongst themselves. They, when, when we lose a little bit of our own sight, if we have a really good, strong female connection, they can help us to see more clearly in ways that nobody else can. Yes. And that peer understanding, but also the grandmothers, there's a certain type of love with the grandmother energy that can't be healed with the parents. Sometimes that's all caught up. I feel that sometimes when my granddaughter just touches my face, it's almost like this little thank you for being here. So I know that feeling like when my cat or especially I have a cat that's always touching me. <laughs> so true. My friend, by the way, is a grandmother and looking at her love. There's nothing else like it and her grandchildren. They don't I, I, I know because I'm older that they have no idea how important their grandmother is to them. They just have no idea. How can they possibly their kids? They're they're you know, they're ones about 13 and one's about six. What can they possibly know of, of the importance of that supporting love that's been there since they were born? You know, I didn't know it just shortly when, when my mother died and I'm, and I'm ancient compared to them. How can they possibly know about that? But to see her move and invest her life, if you're going to have kids and you end up with grandkids, I just so support her in saying, I need to bend my life to be there because because what I can see that the parents are busy and are not offering as much love as these little ones need. And that's what she's done. And so that's my friend and that love of hers. It doesn't just stop with those grandkids. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. Well, yes, certain understanding and a connection, that's for sure. And I hope uh, your friend and you join the Million Vegan Grandmothers. Just a reminder to all our listeners that the grandmothers, there is no status involved in the grandmothers community. As any community, we need the young vegans, the older vegans, the male, Silesh, Dr. Silesh Rao is a very big part of our grandmother community, as is my partner, Paul Papin. And I was wondering, uh, on the Grandmother's channel, the Million Vegan Grandmothers, we're going to start having a little meditation at the end of our sessions. It'll be separate if anybody wants to just tune in once in a while and just listen to a meditation or a blessing. So I'm wondering, Lisa, would you 
do us the honor of ending with maybe a three minute blessing meditation. Thank you. I will do my best. I would like to bless what is around each of us, whether we are surrounded by small patches of grass that are poking from the cement or big trees that grow abundantly in the area because we are nurtured by the world. And when we are aware of the world, we nurture the world that nurtures us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Namaste, vegan. Namaste. Vegan. <laughs>